Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of Logicast, the AWS News Podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined today, as always, by my colleague, lead cloud engineer, John Goodall. How are you doing today, John? Your intro for me is getting better and less annoying. I'm enjoying it. It's getting better. <laughs> I'm refining it as the time goes on. We've only done about 52 episodes, and I'm never quite sure how to introduce you, but... Uh... I'm glad you like it. And uh, we're also joined today uh, by uh, fellow AWS community builder, Jason Andrews from Arm. So uh, thank you very much for joining us, Jason. How are you doing today? Yeah, doing very good. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. Uh, what listeners won't know is we've just had a whole bunch of technical issues, which almost prevented us from recording this episode with Jason. But we're super happy that those technical issues have been resolved. Nothing to do with us or Arm, <laughs> I should hasten to add. Uh, but uh, we're really pleased to have you on. So, Jason, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, where you're from, what do you do for a living, etc. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I'm coming to you from Minneapolis, Minnesota. So that's uh, that's where I live, and I work for Arm uh, remotely. Uh, of course, visiting to Cambridge a number of times and uh, different different Arm sites. But yeah, working remote in Minnesota, uh, I work in what we call developer ecosystems. So my role is really to uh, go around and um, you know promote Arm for different types of compute and different types of applications. As you mentioned, I've been in the AWS Community Builders, uh, I think since the start of the program. I don't know how many years ago that was, uh, but I've been promoting Graviton and helping developers you know, move workloads uh, onto the different ARM instances in AWS, and I've uh, been promoting that for a few years now. So yeah, that's what I do, really. Just get more developers using more ARM uh, everywhere. Nice. So if you've been in the program from the outset, you must have experienced all of the different swag packs that they send out on each uh, annual anniversary, have you? Oh, yeah. I got lots of swag, stickers, patches, uh, all kinds of stuff. Nice. Uh, yeah, I, I think we're coming up to renewal time, aren't we, John? So uh... Uh, Feb, March time for renewal, mm. yeah, because they've rationalized the program now because it used to be twice a year and now it's just once a year or there was one renewal a year, but two application cycles and it was just a mess um because i saw the announcement so now it looks like they're just moving to annual for everything which is much better but i'm slightly yeah. scared of that because i'm i've got to work out now what content i need to put out there because we made a lot but what am i going to put out there that's like my two best things that's going to get me to um you know get that renewal because I really want yeah, to get well, renewed and Carl not get renewed again, because that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, I'm, a, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, I am a year one community builder for the second time. So uh, I've never actually made it to year two of the program, but this is my second year one. Um, so uh, maybe, Jason, if you've been in the program from the start and have been through several renewal cycles, you might be able to give us some little tips off air on there <laughs> how to remain in the program. Okay, <laughs> I will, uh, I'll do my best. <laughs> nice. So uh, we're not here to talk about the Community Builder program, although we are all members of it, and that is part of the reason why we're here. Uh, but as regular listeners to the podcast will know, uh, I collate a list of AWS news articles every week in my weekly AWS News Roundup newsletter. And then John and I pick a subset of those articles that we would like to talk about in a little more detail on the Logicast podcast. So we have a selection of articles this week. And the first article 
is from our good friends over at InfoQ, uh, and it is about the unveiling of the fourth generation AWS Graviton processor with the R8G EC2 instances. So, Jason, this one plays right into your uh, field of expertise. So, I'm going to come to you first and uh, ask you your thoughts on the uh, the latest generation Graviton four CPUs. Uh, it's super impressive. I mean, I, I watched, uh, you know, at reInvent the launches of Graviton 2 and Graviton 3. And, you know, for us at ARM, that's really the most exciting thing because, you know, these things start many years back into the past and it, it goes through a, a long cycle of uh, development. And then to finally kind of be there at reInvent when uh, one of these new uh, Graviton processors is launched, uh, it's super exciting. I mean, this one is it's pretty much better all across the board. I mean, everything is better about it. The cache is bigger, the memory bandwidth is better. I mean, all the technical specs uh, are all great. I think to me, really the big uh, impact of this one is about the scaling. So we've been working over the last you know, number of years, well, probably since Graviton 2 came out, uh, to migrate more developers onto Graviton. And you always have to go through this, you know, a little bit of a dance thinking, okay, what do I have to do to try this thing? It looks like it costs less. Is it really faster? And there's there's a lot of back and forth there. And essentially, the way I see it now is with Graviton Four, um, it kind of takes all the mystery out of the the situation where you say, well, what if it's not fast enough? Or what if I need more virtual CPUs? Because you know it it had a limit basically in the past with Graviton Two and even with Graviton Three, and a lot of those things are gone now. So you know I feel like whatever compute you need, there is a Graviton instance that can probably do it. So you don't have to worry about once I get over there and my app is working, I have to kind of backtrack and go back to where I was. So that's that's really helping with the scaling. Nice. John, thoughts on this one? Um, less on the Graviton side and more on the AWS side, and I'll come to that in a minute. Not everyone probably appreciates this, though, that ARM don't actually make any of the chips. It, you, you just license uh, designs, I think. Is that correct? Yeah. So if, if you're not familiar with the ARM business model, uh, we don't make any chips. Uh, essentially, what we do is we provide an architecture and instruction set, and then we have partners like AWS who make the silicon. Um, and that's the beauty of the business model is all those partners we have, they can customize, they can innovate, they can choose what's best for their applications and for their customers. And it really enables a lot of choice. I mean, that's, that's what you get from it in the end is that, you know, each cloud service provider and, and all the other markets ARM serves, um, you know, those designers make different choices. It gives a lot more um, flexibility and access to things in the marketplace. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's a very unique business model. And I guess the other benefit from the business perspective is you're not having to worry about fabs and foundries and actually doing hardware stuff because hardware is <laughs> difficult. Yeah, that's true. All that stuff costs uh, time and money for sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a cl close collaboration, I would say, with ARM and our silicon partners. Yeah, I thought it was just worth just highlighting that one because you talk about chips and you think about well, it's ARM, but is it Amazon? But is it? Well, it's both technically. Yeah, it's um, true. I mean, the ARM, the ARM ecosystem has shipped so many chips. I mean, the thing that always amazes me is the 270 billion chips. And that, that actually came up in the Graviton 4 launch. Um, you know, AWS announced that they've built, what, over 2 million Graviton chips now. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, because up until 
relatively recently, I guess most ARM chips on GPUs, um, graphics cards, I guess. Um, and now it's it's got this big explosion in the kind of more obvious space with MacBooks and what have you having them in. Yeah, I mean, initially the success of ARM is from the mobile industry. So, you know, in the, the smartphone and all the mobile devices, that's that's sort of ARM's uh, you know first claim to fame, I would say. And yeah, a lot of expanding and server and cloud now, uh, which is a great market. And, uh, and then I think automotive is falling behind that. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the next market that has lots of activity right now. Cool. I'm, yeah, I'm I'm an ARM fan. I've been an ARM fan forever. I've got a Gen One Raspberry Pi kicking around that's so old. It's got the misprint on the board from the. It's it still says it's got a ten meg Ethernet connection. Like it's that old. Um, <laughs> I'm a bit of a fan. Um, the only piece of annoyance I have from this particular article, um, and it's not the chips per se, it's the inconsistency of releases of the various versions between the services, and I get that to an extent. Um, and certainly between the regions, I understand that because, you know, it's physical hardware. You've actually got to go and put it in things. But when you say it's available for EC2, cool. Can I have it in a Lambda? Oh, no, 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 no. That's that's version two or three or whatever they've managed to get up to now. That always grates a bit because if you really want the adoption, make it in the thing that costs less first. Put it in your Lambdas because they just work. And there's very, very few workloads I've found that Lambda doesn't perform better on a Graviton chip. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's just more a matter of execution and getting all the services and all the regions. And yeah, like you say, you have to build hardware and, and roll it out. So I, it's, yeah, that's kind of how AWS chooses to do it. And um, yeah, that's how it mean, works for yeah. them. I, I get it because... I think what's the, what's the number? The revenue breakdown for the services it's still like sixty or seventy percent from EC two, so they're going to put it in the thing that makes money first, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're going to follow follow the money, go where the money goes. I'm sure that's uh, the, the the main driving force behind it. And speaking of money, the article does talk a little bit about pricing. Um, so I wanted to ask you guys your thoughts on this. Obviously, this is more of an AWS issue than, than an ARM issue. Uh, but it seems that the price of the Graviton chips is is creeping up. Now, AWS also always go to great lengths to explain the price performance benefits of the latest version of the chips. And I think, you know, I guess what's happening here is the performance is increasing so much that they can't keep bringing out new generations of chips and making them cheaper than the previous generations of chips. And I think that's what people have been used to seeing with AWS, that typically when a new generation instance is launched, it performs better and costs less um, on a just a, you know, per hour basis than the previous generation. But some of these new Graviton instances are starting to actually cost more than the previous generation because the performance is so much greater. So what are, any thoughts around that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, Graviton started essentially with lower performance and, uh, you know, everybody said, okay, that's fine. The price is lower. Now, when I meet a lot of developers, you know, AWS has been advertising, I think, since the beginning of Graviton, 40% better price performance, right? And some is price and some is performance. Okay, so when I meet people, I would always expect them to say, you know, the price is great, but it's a little bit slower, but that's okay for me. I, I'm fine with that, with that trade-off of price and performance. But early on, even in Graviton 2, I had a lot of people saying the 
it's cheaper and it's faster. And I said, oh, okay, maybe you're not doing anything. or <laughs> Maybe your workload is light or <laughs> something. Um, and, and I think people got used to that. And, and over time now, as the performance keeps going up and you look at Graviton 4, I mean, it's competitive with any other processor that's available uh, in terms of top level performance. So yeah, of course the, the price has to go up on that, but I, I think in the end, it's really having that flexibility. If you still get along great with Graviton 2, the price is still gonna be very attractive. And you don't need to have the latest and greatest, you know, SIMD instructions and, and those type of hardware features. I guess as well, to an extent, people were sort of comparing in the one and two days it to um, an x86 processor. And now it's to itself. So it's getting more expensive than it used to be. But I think it's still cheaper than the x86 equivalent. So it it just, yeah. I don't know, it's, it's a messaging issue, I think, more than a real problem. Yeah. I mean, AWS, obviously, they've gone down this route because of the huge cost savings, um, you know, in the manufacturing and the chip development. So I'm sure they're going to continue to pass that on to the to the users as they have been. So um, not expecting that to change. Yeah, I think that's one of AWS's core principles, isn't it, to, uh, yeah. you know, I forget the exact wording of it now, but, uh, you know, to, to, to continually seeking to reduce the price um, for the for the end user customer. So uh, and they've been pretty true to that, um, you know, throughout their existence. So cool. OK, let's move on then to our second article for this week, which is a slight uh, change of uh, subject matter uh, and uh, back to our old friend uh, Gen AI. Um, but, uh, <laughs> slightly different uh, aspect of Gen AI this week. Um, this is an article from the AWS DevOps blog about best practices for prompt engineering, specifically with Amazon Code Whisperer. But of course, prompt engineering applies to any kind of use of Gen AI. Um, so uh, I had a little read through this, and uh, it just reminds me of um, putting the right search terms into Google to get the right result out, but a slightly different, uh, you know, slightly different angle on that. So, um, John, tell us a bit more about best practices for prompt engineering with Amazon Code Whisperer. I mean, I read this and all I thought of was a, a joke that one of our previous guests, John Topper, had made about this on LinkedIn at the back of um, a developer advocate on DA on tour thing. It's prompt engineering is not just shouting at developers until they do what you tell them to, apparently. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the high line is it's absolutely the same as just knowing how to Google, really. It's knowing how to use the right words to get the right outputs. There's just, and our guest last week, Brian, um, kind of went on about this at great length, and so I talk about dolphins and all sorts, but the short version is using the right words helps. Weirdly, saying please and thank you gets you better results from a machine, but okay, fine. Um and there's going to be specifics for Code Whisperer versus every other LLM out there because they've been trained on different data. And Code Whisperer has presumably been trained primarily on Amazon data. So I suppose these are these tips are going to be more Code Whisperer focused, but as you say, they're kind of generically applicable to an extent. Um, the top line ones, though, just going to read them out real quick. Be specific and concise. Yep, everyone likes that, generally, you know, even people, so that's good. Uh, add context, use multiple comments, because with Code Whisperer, you don't um, have like a chat interface, you do it in comments in your code, in your IDE, 
So that's that's also a thing. Um, it will use comments and code to pick up more context. So if you've got multiple windows open and this um, on tour thing did show this as well, it can interrogate multiple files if they're open. So not if they're just there sitting there, but if you've got them open in your IDE, it will show, you know, you say based on this file, write unit tests, give me test data, blah, blah, blah. And it can reference other files. So you can do that as well. And that gives it more data to work with. Um, and then it talks about cross-file context, which is what I've just said, and then prompts with cross-file context. So the short version, I think, is be prompt, be concise, and give it as much data as you possibly can from either multiple comments or asking it for one simple thing and then build on the thing and then build on the thing rather than all in one go, which the article talks about, um, and have as many things that are relevant to what you're asking it to do open as possible. <laughs> Raspberry Pi mug. <laughs> I will always spy one of them because I have one of them. <laughs> is that the sticker things. or the pin? Uh, that one is a coaster. Oh. Oh, good. <laughs> I've got a load of Gen 1 merch. I told you I'm a fan. Um, right, back on message. Um, but, yeah, it's it's interesting because the LLMs that we're used to, so Amazon Q, ChatGPT, whatever Microsoft's one, no, that, that is ChatGPT. Um, Google's one, Bob, I think, has a, a chat interface, and you're used to sort of chatting to it. But with Code Whisper, it's in your IDE, so you kind of interact with it a little bit differently. Yes, you can You say, you know, generate me this, please, and it will kind of do that, but it's got access to a lot more context, so you work with it a bit differently. So it's definitely worth um, giving this a read and kind of going through it and seeing if you can make it work for you. Because I've tried a couple of times, and I still struggle with it, but I don't know. Maybe my prompts are just rubbish. You need some better prompt engineering, John. <laughs> this is a useful article for you. Any, any thoughts to add on this one, Jason? Yeah, it's it's an interesting concept because so many of these, um, you know, Gen AI things are coming out for developers. Some are targeting, you know, in the IDE, like we're talking about here. Some are chat interface. I still find myself kind of jumping back to the browser. I guess it just comes from the fact that Stack Overflow is the previous way that you did this. So you got stuck, you needed some fragment of code, jump to the browser, you know, put it in there, find the Stack Overflow and kind of work back. So I, I find myself naturally jumping to the chat uh, solutions. And I, I also know it, you have to try a bunch of these you know, so, so it's kind of a trade-off. Like, you want to spend more time in the prompt engineering, or do you just want to go try three or four of them and see which one looks like it's taking you down the right path? It's throwing and things the other, at a wall. Yeah, I mean that's kind of where we're at. I mean, the other thing is my my VS Code now has so many of these plugins. I, I'm not even sure which one is generating the code from time <laughs> to time. So it's a kind of wild west at the moment. And yeah, Code Whisper is is in there, and uh, yeah, I try it out. And, I have other ones I try to. Are you while we're on the subject of Gen AI? Have you had any other great use cases uh, for for yourself? Uses uses of Gen AI? Um, no, I mean we're we're kind of looking at it a lot from a developer's perspective to see how this is going to play out. And it at first it was super exciting, and now I'm kind of thinking, well, maybe it isn't because 
you know, it, it feels a little bit like when the Google search engine was invented and then everybody was so impressed and then you searched and then it didn't answer your question. You say, oh, this, the search is broke. So what do I, what should I do? Well, I should build my own search engine. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. basically what's, what's happening now in the Gen AI is people are trying to get it to do what they want. It doesn't do it. And they say, oh, I should build my own, right? I can get an LLM. I can do rag and this and that, and then I'll, it'll do what I want. Okay, well, that's kind of like building your own search engine if it doesn't find your stuff. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we're, we're kind of going through those phases right now. Bit of a hype cycle uh, happening. Yeah. yeah, it'd be interesting to see how it all pans out. Um, so moving on from uh, Gen AI, uh, the next article this week <clears throat> is from the AWS Cloud Operations and Migrations blog. And it's got a very long title, so let's see if I can read it uh, with, uh, without my teeth falling out. Um, the, the title of this article is How to Use AWS Config Proactive Rules and AWS Cloud Formation Hooks to Prevent Creation of Non-Compliant Cloud Resources. Um, so a few things to unpack there, John. So do you want to start with uh, with some definitions? I can do. The, the yeah, so I... I picked this because this is something I need to do. So I thought, well, I can talk about it here and then I can actually have properly read and understood the article because I need to do this. So it's a bit of a cheat, really. Um, right. So definitions. AWS config. That is a number of things, but it looks at the entirety of your AWS account, depending on how you've configured it, maintains an inventory of everything that's there and allows you to evaluate the state of, state of it compare with a number of rules. You can write your own, you can use pre-built ones. The pre-built ones have parameters. Um, the obvious ones are things like, are your EFS volumes encrypted? Or do your EC2 instances have the right tag on them? You know, do they have the tag? Is it the right value? And so on and so on. That's great, but it doesn't work for um, preventing these things from being wrong in the first place. It just tells you when they are wrong. So you can create the instance without the tag. Then the rule goes, oh, you don't have a tag. And then you have to go and fix it. So it's it's great for that kind of, it's a proactive rule, but okay. Um, it's kind of this more reactive cycle. The traditional way, I suppose, of fixing that would have been to use something like a service control policy or, or an IAM policy that basically says you cannot create this resource, EC2 instance, unless it has a tag on it. Great, wonderful. That breaks CloudFormation because of how CloudFormation works. It will actually create the instance and then tag it afterwards. Uh, it doesn't break Terraform or the API or anything like that because it does it kind of in one hit. But CloudFormation, because of the way it works, that would break CloudFormation. That's not great. So how do you make it play nicely with CloudFormation? You use a hook. Brilliant. So you have to write some code so you can tell it to validate what it's trying to do, and then it will either pass it if it passes or, or stop it from deploying if it doesn't. Wonderful. And this blog tells you how to do it. Great, next. Um, they're really complicated, it turns out. <laughs> Writing your own, they're really complicated. There's 25, 27 pre-rolled ones, mostly from the AWS samples blog. Um, and some of them are handy, some of them are useful, like is EFS encrypted? great you want to check that sort of thing um but if you wanted to do say the tagging one which is specifically what i want to do you have to write it yourself that's a bit of a faff this article does go somewhere to telling you how to do that but there's it's involved it's very involved and honestly i wish it was a bit less involved because this is the sort of thing in my opinion that should be 
one clickable or you know it's pre-done for you yes i get that every criteria in creation can't be accounted for but why are there only like 20 of them that they've thought of like i could come up with that many off the top of my head um but yeah interesting a couple of other interesting bits it, it plays like a lambda it's not a lambda but it plays like a lambda and you test it using lambda and you package it the same way that you would with a lambda but it only supports java or python so no typescript for your javascript pods sorry um which just makes me happy <laughs> he's still suffering from ptsd yeah, i know Steve, we've python to type python to type <laughs> stress disorder yeah <laughs> yeah which we've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast before yeah um but yeah it's interesting these are definitely worth looking into if you have that specific requirement around um you know i must have something like a tag applied and tag is the one that i use as an example because that's what i'm working on and you can use tags for an awful lot of things like cost control and allocation or driving other services like your backups and that kind of thing so making sure you've got something like a tag deployed to all the things you care about is incredibly useful and i guess that's why i'm salty about it because i figured that would be a basic one they'd have done for me and they haven't anything to add on this one jason well it helped me a lot get get from john the reason why this thing was created i couldn't figure out why we need these hooks and uh and why they're there so the context helped a lot to figure out uh you know specifics of cloud formation and why you need this i you know personally i get an email, I think, every Sunday night that tells me I have some violations of the config rules that are in my account and I have to go fix them. But yeah, it's uh, it's a reactive activity and then you have to nag people to fix the stuff. So, you know, it's the more automation, obviously, is better. Absolutely. Cool. OK, let's move on um, to uh, something that we regularly talk about on the podcast, uh, which is cost reduction um so uh, this is an article on a site called digital information world uh entitled the aws calculator and other free tools to reduce your cloud costs um now obviously the aws calculator is not a tool to reduce your cloud costs it's a, a tool to calculate your cloud costs um but uh, that's always a good starting point um but uh, john i know you uh, had a, a a few issues you wanted to uh, to raise with this particular article so uh, what are, what are your thoughts on this calling it an article is generous i think is my biggest problem with this um it, it's i don't know if it's like it's shilling for the cost calculator i'm like what, what what is that achieving like okay fine the, the tools it mentions are useful. Okay, so cost calculator, I hate. I hate it with an absolute fiery passion because it's awful. It's, it's just awful because you've got to know so much data to get an accurate kind of measure uh, to then get an estimate of your cost. It's, it's almost unviable. Well, and the only way to save a cost calculation is to copy the hyperlink and, and save that somewhere yeah. in a bookmark. And if you forget to do that, you lose all of the work you've put in there, which is quite frustrating. So uh, if uh, the cost calculator developers are listening, uh, we'd love a much better way of saving those, uh, those cost calculations um, because uh, it's a little bit clunky. Yeah. The other tools are more interesting. And yes, it's a bit basic and a little bit remedial, but I like to keep bringing the basics up again and again because people, you know, we live and breathe this every day. Not everybody does. The other ones that are useful, Cost Explorer. Cost Explorer has been getting steadily better over the past couple of years. A few years ago, it was a bit kind of, meh, I'll read the bill. And now it's actually quite useful. 
um, especially when you tie it into things like uh, cost and usage reports as well. And it will give you these nice graphs and you can work out where your spend's going across multiple accounts within an organization and uh, export pretty graphs for management so that they can just look at a bar graph or a pie chart or whatever. And that's great. Love Cost Explorer. Use, use that quite a bit, to be really honest. So that's useful. A trusted Advisor. Less helpful, but worth knowing exists because Trusted Advisor doesn't just talk about cost. It talks about other things as well, but it's useful. It's worth knowing it exists. And then budgets is not um, a tool per se to reduce costs. It's just, again, cost tracking, which is, I suppose, the cost calculator one. Uh, and then Compute Optimizer, which is, again, you know, you're over-provisioned, you're under-provisioned, or all it seems to be recommending these days is you could save a load of money by using Graviton. Cool, thanks. <laughs> That's the right answer. <laughs> Jason's very happy about that recommendation. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's all it says. It's all it says. It's just use Graviton. Wonderful. I'm not rebuilding my entire application on ARM. Much as I like ARM, it's no. This application is older than I am. I'm not rebuilding it. <laughs> Anything to add on the on the cost side of things, Jason? No, not too much. I mean, I, I'm not in the trenches day to day uh, doing cost type work like you guys are. So I'll leave it there. Yep, no worries. Um, okay, let's skip on to our final article for this week then, um, which is about the annual Gartner Magic Quadrant uh, for cloud services, of which, uh, of course, AWS, uh, among other cloud providers, are in the leaders quadrant. Um, one thing that frustrated me about this article, and I guess it's because they don't have the reprint rights, but I don't think it actually includes the quadrant. So it talks <laughs> all about the quadrant, but uh, you know, the quadrant is a very visual uh, tool, and uh, I could not find a picture of the quadrant in the article, um, which was quite frustrating because uh, when you look at the quadrant, you can see how uh, the different vendors compare to one another in their particular quadrant. Um, uh, and of course, you've got the... Uh, I, I forget what the two axes are, but it's uh, I think it's completeness of vision and ability to execute. I can't remember yeah. which way round yeah. they are. Um, but obviously, you can be in a quadrant, but you can be further along those axes than the competitors. So that's the that's the interesting thing uh, to look at from my perspective. But unfortunately, in this particular article, I couldn't see that. Um, and but, that makes um, it less useful because you look at AWS, GCP, Microsoft, and Oracle, and they're all leaders. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That but they will anything. all be in a different position in the quadrant, mm. which is why you need to to look at it. So uh, uh, I guess we could have found another article where we could actually see the quadrant. Uh, but usually, I would expect to see AWS much further into the top right um, than than any of the other vendors. Uh, but as we can't see it, we can't uh, we can't confirm that from, from reading this article. But uh, what are your thoughts on the on the magic quadrants, Jason? I'm sure uh, you, you've you've looked at these before. Yeah, yeah I definitely looked at them before. Um... It's been kind of shifting over time. I mean, AWS, I think, was way out in front for quite some time. Um, and now Microsoft is creeping up, getting closer, definitely improving. I mean, I, I think in this particular article, Microsoft was number one on the vision uh, hmm. access. So um, that was kind of interesting to see. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's bunching up a little more than, than what we've seen in the past. And that's probably going to continue. And, you know, AWS will have to work hard on the differentiation to stay out front. Yeah, I mean, we, we are always talking about AWS. So we're very kind of entrenched in the world of AWS and all of the new things that are coming out of AWS. But actually, if you zoom out a little bit, 
these new things are all coming out in in Microsoft Azure as well. So uh, you know the whole um, the Amazon Q that was launched at um, reInvent. Uh, Microsoft have their Copilot, I think it's called, uh, which mm-hmm. they're pushing yeah. very heavily now. Um, so uh, you know there's a, there's a lot of similarities in the, uh, the 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 visions that these guys have, uh, and of course Microsoft has as much of an ability to execute on these things as uh, as AWS does. So it's going to be interesting to see how this uh, this pans out over time. Um, what about some of the other providers, though? Do you think any anyone else is really in the mix um, in terms of, uh, you know, the, 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 yeah, the, the leaders? Yeah, it's, um, it's hard to say. I mean, generally, I'm working at the compute level and, you know, in processor space. And, you know, the top four have all uh, adopted the ARM architecture in, in some form uh, as as of now. So, you know, we saw we saw AWS way out front kind of by themselves for some time. Uh, and then Microsoft uh, had a new chip uh, last year, late last year. Uh, we've been working with Oracle uh, for some time. They've they've adopted uh, ARM architecture in their cloud as well, and they have a very um, interesting free tier for developers, which gives you a pretty good VM for free forever. They say <laughs> so. Okay, I'll take one of those. Um, but um, yeah, all the other guys are are coming up uh, in the, the ARM architecture. They all have instances available, so it's it's going to get more competitive, I would think. Which uh, can only be good for the industry, a uh, bit of competition, because there's obviously been a lot of criticism, particularly in the UK, um, about the, uh, the the monopolistic position that... Uh, oh, yeah, the the CMA the- loves shouting about it and yeah, then doing yeah, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's been a lot of that. We've talked about it on the podcast. There's been a lot of it in the press recently, but uh, more competition uh, is always good um, for the market and for the, uh, for the customers. But uh, that brings us neatly to the end of our time for this week uh, for Season 3, Episode 2 of Logicast. So uh, if you're still listening, thank you for listening. John, <laughs> thank you, as always, for your insights. Jason, thank you for being patient with us through those technical issues uh, prior to the recording. And uh, thank you very much for joining us and uh, giving us the insights from your perspective. Um, if you've enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends. We are available on all major podcast distribution platforms. If you'd like to see our faces while you listen to us, we're also on YouTube uh, and uh, the uh, Podbean video distribution platform. Um, so uh, that was all for season three, episode two of Logicast. We'll be back next week with another guest and another episode for you. We'll see you next time. Thank you very much. <laughs>